I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 36th part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that the more advanced level of Christianity is developing a Christian attitude that works and hopes for the repentance of others. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. March the 1st, 2009 is flying by. Uh, this is our sermonic review of the last year of the life of the Christ, and this is the 36th part of it, which our text is of John chapter 11, verse 49 and 50, which says, And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, give us the words to say, and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray, amen. Now thank you very much for coming to hear our message today and before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. In our last lesson, I made the point that our mission as a church is to provide an effective argument for the historical reality of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to our community, and that it is my job to preach and public presentations that affirm the evidence that the biblical accounts of the activities of Jesus Christ are historically accurate. And in our last lesson, we also recounted the episode in which Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus arrived at Bethany after Lazarus's death, he talked to Lazarus' sisters who showed him the way to the tomb. John eleven thirty eight through 44 records, Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, 
and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. As was my point in our last lesson, this miracle had a great impact on the disciples. The discussion that the disciples had with Jesus about Lazarus' illness before they left for Bethany, the statement from Jesus during that discussion that he was going to wake Lazarus out of sleep, the fact that when Jesus and the disciples reached Bethany, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, Jesus' declaration to Martha and the disciples that I am the resurrection and the life, and the final fact that Jesus prayed a prayer to God and spoke a word to a dead man and Lazarus rose from the dead, all had a powerful impact on those who had allegiance to Jesus Christ before these events occurred. And of all the miracles that the disciples saw Jesus perform, the raising of Lazarus was the one that gave the disciples absolute confidence in the abilities and identity of Jesus. After Lazarus, the disciples certainly believed that which Peter confessed when Jesus asked them about their impressions of his identity in Matthew 16, 13 through 16. Bible says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So not only has the raising of Lazarus convinced the disciples that Jesus is the Son of God, it also convinced many of the other Jews who were blessed to see Lazarus come out of the tomb. John 11 and 45 says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. Their mourning changed to joy when Lazarus was raised from the dead. But as great as was the miracle that Jesus performed, equally astonishing was the reaction of those that opposed Jesus' ministry. John eleven forty six through 48 records, But some of them that witnessed the miracle went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man Jesus works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Now, a few weeks ago, we had an interesting discussion about sinfulness. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, sin does not always involve violating one of the physical commandments as in, you shall not steal, you shall not kill, or you shall not commit adultery. As a matter of fact, keeping the physical commandments is the elementary level of Christianity. The more advanced level of Christianity involves developing a Christian attitude, which is an attitude that works and hopes for the repentance of others. Jesus gave the disciples a lesson on the Christian attitude when he was on his way to Jerusalem for his last time and was rejected by the Samaritans in whose town he intended to stay the night. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 through 56 records, Now it came to pass 
when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly sent his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him before, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And Jesus stated the Christian attitude succinctly in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Christian attitude begins with the knowledge that regardless of how sinful a person may have been, as long as he or she is alive, they have the opportunity to decide to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and to repent of and be forgiven for their sins. The Christian attitude is the long view, the view of perpetually giving others another chance to repent because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, we do not have forever to repent because life is finite, and we are all going to come to the end of life someday. However, until a person actually dies, even if they do not respond to our most passionate of attempts to persuade them to reconcile their lives with the Lord, we have to keep our hope for their repentance alive because if they live, they will have another chance. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Jesus is always looking for the way to reconcile men to God. But the Jewish religious leaders have the opposite perspective. John 11, 46 through 48 records, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man Jesus works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Let me translate. If Jesus keeps raising people from the dead, he will be more popular with the people than we are. And since raising people from the dead makes Jesus closer to God than we are, Jesus will become the de facto religious leader of Israel and will be able to usurp our authority. And once Jesus is in authority, and the Romans begin to deal with Jesus rather than with us, we will lose our place in the power structure, and then Jesus will mess up the deal that we have with the Romans to keep things going. The Jewish leadership concluded that Jesus, being a Galilean carpenter, was not sophisticated enough to deal with the requirements of playing politics with Pontius Pilate. 
Jesus, with his honesty, would not handle the system of kickbacks, under-the-table political deals, and threats to appeal to Caesar in Rome that were required to deal with the Roman procurator. If Jesus was in charge and did not deal with Pilate in the proper way politically, Pilate might become angry and begin mass crucifixions of the leadership in order to get things back under control. On the one hand, Jesus demonstrated great power with God, but on the other hand, the Jewish leadership was concerned about politics, not religion. And the Jewish leaders could not allow Jesus to gain a position of authority because he would probably mess up the political system that they had put together with Pilate. A conundrum if ever there was one. What could they do with Jesus? Well now, this logical analysis of the problem before the council is only partly collect, correct. rather. Pilate had not contacted the Jewish leadership about Jesus, nor had Pilate informed them that unless they got Jesus under control, bad things were going to happen. No, the Romans were not really the reason for the council's deliberations. The Jews were primarily concerned with the politics of maintaining their authority and power among their own people. The Jewish leadership intended to stay in charge, and they did not intend to allow a hick from the sticks like Jesus to usurp their authority with just a few miracles. Now, the person who was in charge and had the most to lose was Caiaphas, who was the high priest and the leader of the Sanhedrin. He gave the council a murderous solution to the conflict between the Sanhedrin and Jesus that just happened to dovetail with the plan of God. Our text for today, John 11, 49 and 50 records, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is the expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, there is an old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. Caiaphas' version of the old saying was, if you can't beat them, kill them. Caiaphas was not primarily concerned about the nation because he said it is expedient for us that one man should die. And there was no imminent threat to the nation of Israel, but there was an imminent threat to the leadership of the Jewish council. There was a, a more imminent threat to the emotional well-being of the Jewish leaders because there was someone in town that was clearly holier than they were. So the Jewish leaders decided to act on Caiaphas' recommendation, as John 11:53 records, then from that day on, they plotted to put Jesus to death. Now, religious leadership is an interesting thing. There is a great temptation in religious leadership to take on the authority of God. People expect religious leaders to speak for God, even as Moses spoke for God when he brought the Ten Commandments down from the mountain on tablets of stone. The problem is that religious leaders sometimes have a difficult time speaking for God because they don't always know what God would say in a given situation. In some cases, rather than pleading their ignorance of God's perspective, a religious leader might make something up that sounds good to them. 
So advice from the pulpit may not actually be the word of God, but may be the word of the religious leader. And that is fine, as long as both the religious leaders and their followers are clear on the difference between that which God has commanded and that which the leader thinks is a good idea. And God has designed his communications with us in such a way that his commandments are true, but that they are not comprehensive. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 tells us, and God said, let us make man in our, in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when God said had to have dominion in Genesis 1:28, God was telling the man and by uh, and us by extension, you have a certain amount of decision-making authority over these things that I have given you. Our authority is limited because God reserves some decisions for himself, which is the reason for Bible teaching. And God commands us to not make decisions that fall outside of the authority that he has given us. For instance, God tells the man in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So God gave man authority over the fruit of the many trees in the garden, but God maintained the authority over the fruit of one of the trees for himself. The man had decision-making authority, but the man's authority was not total. God clearly drew the line of demarcation between his authority and that of the man by naming the tree from which the man was prohibited and by giving the tree a distinctive place in the midst of the garden so that the man would not eat the fruit of the tree accidentally. And that is the pattern of our life in the world. God gives us authority, but clearly marks out where our authority ends and his begins. Our God-given job is to do the best that we can to make decisions that mirror those that God would make as we exercise our authority which is by why the Bible tells us that we are made in God's image and likeness, as we have already read in Genesis 1.26. Being made in God's image and likeness does not mean that we physically look like God, but that we have the same capacity for intellectual decision-making, for logic and for reason, as God does. So Caiaphas, as the high priest and the leader of the Jewish religious council, was in charge of making decisions about the direction of the nation of Israel. It was his job to preside over and influence the development of the response of the Jewish religious leadership to the resurrection of Lazarus and the political popularity that it was sure to bring Jesus. 
publicly commanding a man who had been dead and buried for four days to rise from the dead, and having the dead man obey his command was certainly an action that would bring Jesus to the forefront of religious life and would demand a response from the leaders of the dominant religion of the day. So Caiaphas, the leader of the Jews, made a decision, which was to order the death of the man who raised the man from the dead. Caiaphas' order for the death of Jesus, however, was over God's line of demarcation. God reserved the decision as to when a man should die for himself and the legal authorities that he has appointed. The legal authorities, of which Caiaphas was one, could order death, but only under certain specific circumstances. Deuteronomy 17, 8, 9, and 12 records, If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge, between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands the minister there before your Lord, the Lord your God, or the judge, that man shall die, so shall you put away the evil from Israel. So the priest was to order a sentence of death when judging a physical infraction of the law of God. But Caiaphas said, it is expedient for us that one man should die. There is no infraction in the law of God in Jesus' actions. Caiaphas is planning to use his power to kill Jesus for expediency's sake. And killing someone just to keep or better your own position is called murder. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. But although Caiaphas' order was murderous and sinful, God has the capacity to use our sinfulness to accomplish his purpose. God's foresight about that which we will do and his cleverness to use our sin for a higher purpose does not make our sinfulness any, any less sinful, but it does allow God to navigate the circumstances of our lives in such a way that we can see the pattern of his movements in history and emulate his example in our decision-making. Caiaphas sinned when he said to his fellow leaders, it is the expedience for us that one man should die for the nation. But God decreed that that which Caiaphas said sinfully would become true, but not in the way that Caiaphas intended. God tells us in John chapter 11, verse 51 and 52, now this Caiaphas did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Caiaphas intended that Jesus should die so that the Jewish leaders would be able to keep their political positions. 
God intended that Jesus would die so that all that chose to believe in Jesus Christ, including the Jews, could be saved from the eternal consequences of their sins. Both God and Caiaphas planned that Jesus would die, but God's plan for Jesus' death was benevolent, while Jesus' plan, while Caiaphas' plan, rather, was self-centered. And the great sin of mankind is not necessarily a physical sin, such as killing, stealing, or the commission of adultery, but the great sin of mankind is self-centeredness. In Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now self-centeredness started in the garden. The first content of the first temptation in Genesis 3.5 is... For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil trapped the woman with the words, you will be like God. God was in charge of the garden and the man and woman were to have dominion over the garden under God's authority. But the devil told the woman, don't let God tell you what to do. Eat this fruit and you will be like God and then you can do whatever you want to do. Compare the devil's message to the woman, do whatever you want to do, to Jesus' message to his disciples, deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me. The devil advised the woman to be self-centered while Jesus advised the, the disciples to deny themselves and be other-directed. And another word for sin is self-centeredness. Romans 3.23 could accurately be rewritten, for all are self-centered and fall short of the glory of God. And the reason that we are still sinners is that we are still self-centered. We, like Caiaphas, are concerned about that which will be expedient for us, and we have not yet totally developed the maturity of other directedness. In the New International Version of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Where is our sinfulness? Well, let us ask ourselves, are we always patient? Are we always kind? Is boasting or pride a part of our personality? Have we been rude to or angry with anyone recently? Are we holding grudges against anyone for things that they have done in the past? 
Have we been glad when someone gets their comeuppance rather than praying for their repentance and reconciliation? Have we always trusted those whom we should trust and always hoped for the best rather than feared the worst in tough situations? When tasked with protecting someone, have we persevered in our protection or let them down? Now, you may have eschewed fornication, adultery, murder, and robbery, but still not reach the standard of true Christianity. The Apostle Paul told the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look, look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I repeat my point of several weeks ago. One of the reasons that our marriages and familial relationships are so important is that they are the laboratory in which we have the opportunity to develop our other directedness. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 teaches us that love does not lead us to marry someone for that which they can give us, but for that which we can give them. When we focus on that which we can obtain from our marriages, rather than on that which we can give, the love in our marriages becomes sibling rivalries, as we see our spouses as the ones that should sacrifice for us, rather than the ones for whom we should sacrifice. We grow when we give and we shrink when we demand that others give to us. Almost every time that I have chosen to give in to my wife and do that which she wanted to do, we have drawn closer in our relationship and I have seen the benefit of her plan. If it had been up to me, we would never have obtained a dog, nor we have taken up dancing, and now the dog is my daily companion and dancing is our passion. It takes an adjustment period to do something with which you are uncomfortable, and the early stages of adjustment are difficult, but the benefits gained by seeing life from someone else's perspective are wonderful. And God has given us the laboratory of life to learn this lesson, and the other people in the world, especially our spouses, are the components of the experiment that we are performing to find out how to keep God's commandments not the commandment to conform to the physical room rules, but the commandment to love. Matthew 22, 35 through 40 records, then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question testing him and saying, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And Jesus puts the bar for love pretty high. He told his disciples in Matthew 5 and 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And Jesus showed his love for Caiaphas and for all the Jewish leadership during his Jewish trial. Jesus' accusers 
were not able to convict Jesus of any sin as he had done none. The trial was going badly for the Jews when Caiaphas himself decided to take a hand in the proceedings. Matthew 26, 62 and 63 records, And the high priest arose and said to Jesus, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now Jesus would have been within his rights to say nothing, and his refusal to speak would have effectively ended the trial. But God's only begotten Son understood that if he refused to speak, those that hated him would not be able to kill him on the cross, and then he would not be able to extend his love and salvation to them. The purest form of love is disinterested love, the ability to extend love even to those that hate you. So Jesus chose to answer the question and to go to the cross. Matthew 26, 64 through 66 says, And Jesus said to him, It is as you have said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. And once again, Caiaphas came to an ungodly conclusion because it was expedient for him. But God used Caiaphas' ungodliness to send Jesus to the old rugged cross so that Jesus' love for us could compensate for our lack of love for others. So let us resolve not to choose, as Caiaphas did, to do that which we consider expedient for ourselves at the expense of someone else, regardless of how justified we may feel to do so, as that would may be to maintain our sinful nature. But let us give up our sinful nature and love one another, bearing the fruit of the Spirit of God, as Galatians 5, 22-26 instruct us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are, who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So let us love one another, even as Jesus has loved us, because all men will know that we are his disciples if we show love, approaching his level of selfless love for one another. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for this lesson today. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us the love that you had and allow us to put away those evil thoughts that we have and not look at those things that are the best for us. But rather than minding our own things, let us be mindful of the things of others, particularly the, of the things of those with whom we sleep in the bed at night and with whom we share meals every day. Help us, Lord, to use our marital laboratories to grow in grace 
and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. We ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.